their, their, their eyes back with their hands, or uh, sometimes I'd be wearing uh, hand-me-down clothes from my cousins that had Chinese characters on them because they're from their schools. And I just remember other kids pointing to them and saying things like ching ching chong. Being Chinese was bad. That that would make me, that's what made me different. And I felt really lonely at school. You know, a lot of times I only just played with the other Chinese girl and I didn't really have a lot of friends. And uh, there are times where I would really dread recess and lunch because those were the loneliest times of the day. So for me as a little girl, I wanted to be the same. For me, I felt that if I gave up speaking Mandarin, it would help me feel accepted at school. You know, that was the way in, to erase all the things that made me different, all the things that would give someone reason to make fun of me, uh, to stop bringing chopsticks to school, to stop eating uh, food in a little biendang, to stop doing all that stuff that made people go, ooh, what is that? That's different. That's weird. I wanted to give all of that up. I didn't understand that I was giving up uh, what I was giving up. I just thought I had the world to gain. I didn't realize I was giving up the ability to communicate with my parents in their heart language. I didn't realize I was giving up the ability to communicate with my grandparents and my aunts and uncles who couldn't speak English. Uh, I didn't realize the cost of that decision. We're going to look today at Acts 2, uh, 1 to 13, just to look a little bit more about uh, language and what God thinks about language. So if you have your Bibles, you can open that up, or I think it'll be on the screen as well. So the disciples are all waiting together in a room. It says in Acts 2, 1, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. So Pentecost was a celebration of when Moses brings, uh, when Moses brought the Ten Commandments and presented it to the Israelites. And it was customary for Jewish people of that time from all around the region uh, to come back to Jerusalem if they could to celebrate this holiday. So they're all there. Uh, and when it says they, this is referring to the disciples waiting together in one place. And suddenly from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and the tongue and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. So they're all in this room, this supernatural thing happens, and they start to preach in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. So this story is interesting. It starts in this house, which sounds sort of like a private event, but then it shifts to become public, where devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem uh, are there, or in Jerusalem. And then at this sound, there's a crowd that gathers. So it shifts from being a private event to public. Either they were really loud in the rooms and people outside heard and it drew a crowd, or maybe they just kind of spilled out onto the street and started just being filled with the Holy Spirit and preaching. Uh, I'm not sure what makes it public, but somehow a crowd hears the sound and is gathered, and they're astonished. So picking back up in verse 7, amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? 
Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said they are filled with new wine. So this list of all these different locations, basically to the Jewish people at this time, would have felt like all the known world to them. They basically listed every country or nation uh, to the outskirts of their understanding of what the world was. And so they're trying to be very inclusive here and to name all these different nations there. And all of them hear in their own languages, hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. So what were the, the disciples doing here in Jerusalem? Well, they were in Jerusalem uh, uh, waiting because of uh, Jesus' final promise and instructions to them. In Luke twenty four forty six to 49, and also in the beginning of Acts 1, uh, Jesus talks to his disciples before he's resurrected. So he, after he's resurrected, before he's raised back into heaven. So he hangs out with them. You know, he does that thing where they touch his hand to see if he's really, you know, physically there. He eats some fish, and then he gives them these final instructions. Uh, he says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, uh, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Uh, this is in Luke 24. So then Luke twenty four forty five, he says to them, This is all done uh, to fulfill what was written, and this is what was written, that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in, in this day, and that repentance of, oh, to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus' last instructions to the disciples were, you will be witnesses to all nations, proclaiming the forgiveness of sins, uh, beginning from Jerusalem. And see, I am sending upon you what my Father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So the disciples are waiting in Jerusalem because Jesus promised them that he was going to send them the Spirit and that would clothe them from, with power so that they might reach all nations and preach and be witnesses to what Jesus has done on the cross, his resurrection, the repentance and forgiveness of sins. And what makes this event really miraculous for, for these people who are Jewish from all these other nations so Jewish people, they were kind of spread out all around um, this area that I named all these different countries, all these different nations. And many of them would speak Aramaic. That would be the common language that they would expect people to speak uh, in Jerusalem. But because they live in all these other places, they live in Rome, they live in Cyrene, they probably speak other languages. Maybe their families have been in those other places for a long time, and they speak those other languages. Uh, so now, while they're there, they're astonished because all these people who are Galileans, who would probably most likely speak Aramaic, are speaking in their native language. Maybe they're speaking in uh, whatever those other countries speak. Uh, maybe they're speaking one of those other languages. And it speaks, uh, it touches them and speaks to their heart language. And what happens is that all of them are filled with the Holy Spirit 
All the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit and speaks in other languages as the Spirit gives them ability. Now, why does God choose to empower the disciples to preach the gospel in other languages uh, other than Aramaic? Why is that so important? Why not? I mean, all these other people, they probably speak Aramaic. That's probably something they have to learn as part of their culture. Uh, why does he choose to empower uh, the disciples to speak in other languages? Well, I believe that uh, one reason is because language is a doorway into a culture's heart. Language is a doorway into a culture's heart. Uh, when I went to the Philippines, uh, one of the things I learned is that in Tagalog, there's no word for privacy. And I definitely saw that. Uh, we, we were, my husband and I, we were there on uh, a missions project, and we saw, uh, we hung out with a lot of street kids. And we stayed in one of the houses where they were housing some of these street kids, and they were like family. And in the, in the night, uh, they would start each with their own mat. You know, everybody would be sleeping on their own mat. And in the morning, you'd have five kids on one mat, and they're all just, you know, hugging each other. It's very sweet. Uh, but I, I understood now that why there's no word in Tagalog for privacy, because um, that's not, you know, as valuable to their culture as uh, to American culture. Um, also, in, in Tagalog, there's two different words for we, for inclusive. There's, um, there's kami, which is we, but not including the listener. And then there's tayo, which is we, but including the listener. So there's a value for inclusivity, so much that you have to be very explicit about who you're including as you're speaking. Uh, additionally, in Mandarin... Uh, there's many words to talk about the consistency of food. So much more than in English. You know, you could say, oh, is this kyukyuda or is this tsui tsui da? And you can't say those words in English uh, because I think English speakers or American folks are just not as obsessed with food as uh, Chinese people are. So language is a doorway into a culture's heart. And as we translate the gospel into a culture's heart language, that allows for deeper transformation. So for me, I shared a little bit in the beginning about how I gave up my language. I gave up speaking Mandarin for a long time. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't something that I really cared to do. Or, you know, I, my parents sent me to Chinese school. I failed most of my classes, but they kept promoting me. Um, and then I graduated not really knowing how to read or write. But I remember going to this missions conference called Urbana that InterVarsity puts on every three years for college students to think about the world. And... While I was there, they were, we were singing songs in all these different languages, and I was like, that is great. We sang a, language, we sang a song in Swahili. We sang a song uh, in Spanish. I think we sang a song in Creole, and I was like, this is cool. And we don't need to sing a song in Chinese because there's, there's too many of us anyway. We don't need any affirmation. Um, that was just kind of my own self-hatred coming out. And I remember sitting there in this crowd of 19,000 students, and this, the violinist of the worship team goes up. And she goes, Dajahao. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's speaking Mandarin. What's going on? And she said, everybody, have a good night. Or, hi, everybody. I don't know how to translate that. She said, hi, everybody. And then she started singing this song uh, about God's love for all the peoples of the world. And she sang it in Mandarin. And as she was singing, I just started weeping. Because as she was singing, I felt like God was saying to me, Wendy, see, there is beauty in your culture. Uh, there is value in it. Uh, I loved your people so much that I sent missionaries to China, uh, that your grandma would know me and pass the faith down to your, your, your father and to you. Uh, I loved you so much that I sent missionaries to Taiwan, that your mom would 
uh, stumble into a church looking for free greeting cards and, and fall in love with Jesus. Uh, I love your people so much. And I think that was the first time I had ever heard directly from God the sense that he really loved me and my people, and I didn't have to leave behind my culture or my ethnicity or my language in order to follow Jesus. You know, very unlike my experience in Santa Barbara in those schools, I didn't have to lose who I was in order to be accepted, that God accepted me for who I was. So hearing the gospel in our own heart language can go, make it go deeper and speak to us in a deeper way and allow for deeper transformation. Uh, there's a missionary theologian, uh, Rene Padilla, and he wrote an article about how <clears throat> when we bring the gospel to another culture, a lot of times we wrap it up in our own culture because that's who we are. It's wrapped up in who we are, and we bring our own culture with it. Uh, and if we don't translate it, if we don't unwrap for them, like, this is my culture, I have a self-awareness about who I am, and this is what I bring to this, if we don't unwrap that for them, oftentimes what happens is the new culture takes that whole, the gospel and the wrapping paper on the outside of it, and then they put another layer of wrapping paper around it. And there's a way that, uh, that the gospel is kind of restrained by that and doesn't get a chance to really enter deeply into their culture. And oftentimes what happens is the new culture, the receiving culture, will take the gospel and then they'll do the actions or the motions that they see the giving culture show them of what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, but it's all surface level. And then the next generation of children uh, don't actually end up uh, embracing the gospel uh, because it hasn't penetrated into the heart of the culture. And that's why translation is so important. For me, as an Asian American, growing up, the way I heard the gospel, which isn't bad, but this is the way I heard the gospel. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And for the wages of sin is death. Uh, but Christ, you know, in his mercy, uh, paid those wages of sin, the, paid for the wages of sin, which was death, uh, by, by dying. With his blood, he died upon the cross, and God resurrected him and gave us new life. This is a good story. This is good news. Hearing this story made me love God. It made me realize God has unconditional love for me. Uh, he can do for me what I could never do for myself. The one thing that it was missing was a little bit of translation for me as an Asian American. So I heard this gospel story, and I thought, great, God is so good. But every time I sinned, I felt this shame, and I felt like I couldn't go to God with my sin. And people would say to me, but he's already forgiven you. He's already paid the debt of your sin. And I was like, I know that, but why do I always feel like I can't go to God when I sin? I feel like there's this barrier that he, he'll forgive me because he's obligated to out of love, but that he doesn't really like me. Why do I feel like God sees me as a black sheep who he's always fixing problems for, who he's always um, trying to absolve my sin for, someone who's a burden? And it wasn't until I was in college and my roommate left on our table, our coffee table, this book called Losing Faith, Saving Grace, that I got to hear the gospel a little bit translated for me. Uh, my roommate wasn't doing this book, but she just left it on the coffee table, so I feel like it was God who left it there, but... Um, it's this Bible study, and in this Bible study, he said that the, the author was talking about how God doesn't just take our guilt, but he removes our shame. That Christ's work on the cross didn't just mean that Jesus paid our debts, but that he also restored us to a place of honor in God's family. So what hadn't worked for me as an Asian American before was that the gospel story I heard addressed the issue of guilt, 
but didn't address the issue of shame. And for me, shame was a much stronger cry. That's a much stronger need for me, uh, for God, to, to heal and to work in than guilt. Uh, kind of an example I think of is uh, when you go out to eat as a, as a Chinese person, if you go out to eat with people over and over and they're your peers and they always pay, that is shameful. That is not okay. I remember one time my mom fought someone for a check so hard, they ripped the check in half. And then that brought shame on us all because then we were like, I don't know how we're going to pay. But there's this sense of like right, being in right relationship means that you hold up your end of, of the relationship. You contribute to the relationship and that's what brings honor to both people. Uh, but if, if one person is always paying for the other person, that brings a sense of shame on the person who's always being paid for. And so for me, hearing that Jesus paid for my sins made me feel like shameful that I was not bringing anything to this relationship and I was not in a place of honor towards God and that I was not seen as a, a, right, a person in right relationship. So for me to hear that Jesus takes not only my sin, but also my shame was huge for me. To realize that Jesus no longer saw me as a foreigner or an alien, but now as a full-fledged member of God's household. That was huge for me. It gave me a sense of freedom to know that when I go to God, he doesn't see me as a black sheep. That the honor that he ascribes to Jesus is the same honor that he has given me. That the way he sees Jesus is how he sees me. That he sees me as a full member of God's household. That I'm a daughter who is honored and embraced and welcomed and liked. That God likes to be around me. That was very key for me. So as we translate the gospel, the gospel has a chance to bring freedom and speak to a culture's heart cry for God. For Native Americans, now I can't speak for all Native Americans because there are many different kinds of tribes of Native Americans. There's no one culture. There's many cultures of Native Americans. But one tendency in Native American cultures is to view history through the lens of place instead of time. So when we share the gospel as the sequential order of things, like people sinned, God forgave them, and now you'll be resurrected as individuals, it doesn't speak to their need for understanding history through the, through the lens of place. What does this mean for creation? What does this mean for all of earth? A, a gospel narrative for Native American must include where creation's role. God is our creator. Creation has fallen. And now, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, he's restoring all things. Our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, but also our relationship with all of creation. All of creation is being restored because of the power of Jesus' work on the cross. For African Americans, translating the gospel for African Americans, it has to include answering the question of what kind of freedom does the gospel bring? You know, for an African American to hear, yes, the gospel frees me from my sin. Jesus died and frees me from my sin. But what about the oppression that I experience from other people's sins towards me? Does the gospel free me from that as well? Today, there are more African Americans who are in prison uh, than who were under slavery in the 1800s. The, number, the percentage of drug users who are black and white are about the same, about 10, 12%. But the number of black folks who are incarcerated for having drug possession is 10 times higher than white people. 
There is oppression that black people feel that causes them to ask, what kind of freedom does the gospel bring? Jesus' death and resurrection, it frees me from my sin, but also does it free us from our sins against one another? What kind of freedom does the gospel bring? When will I experience the freedom of heaven? So as we think about um, the story of translating the gospel into other languages, how do we become people like this, like the disciples who are able to translate the gospel into other languages? How do we apply this in our lives? And I believe the first step is to embrace our identities, to embrace our identities. When the disciples were preaching in all these different languages, one of the questions people asked were, are these not all Galileans? So as they're preaching, there's still something about them that makes them seem Galilean. Maybe it's they have the Galilean sideburn or they, their clothing or their, their accents even as they're preaching in other languages. Maybe they have this Galilean accent that they're preaching with. Something about them still marks them as Galilean. And as we bring the gospel to other cultures, it would be a fallacy to just pretend that we aren't of our own ethnicity or we aren't of our own identity. Uh, that stays with us. We embody the gospel in who we are. So we have to admit to ourselves who we are, that we have a culture, and embrace that, to accept that as a gift from God. And I know some of us sometimes feel like, do I have a culture? I'm not sure. Um, you know, just to clarify, uh, culture, I believe, includes, you know, your attitudes, your beliefs, customs, traditions, art, your clothing, food, your language, um, some history or even major events that mark your history. And so, if, you know, all of us here are clothed, thankfully. Uh, so we all have, that's a symbol that we all have some sort of cultural background. And it's harder to figure out where, did the, where does those cultures come from? You know, a lot of us are hyphenated cultures. You know, I'm Chinese, Taiwanese, and American. There's a lot of me that's a, that comes from American culture. But then there's a lot of me that comes from Chinese culture. So identifying uh, those different cultural influences that form our identity is really important. Uh, sometimes I hear from white folks saying that, you know, I don't think I have a culture. And I just want to say I affirm that white people have a culture. Uh, there are, you know, attitudes, beliefs, customs, traditions, and art that come from white culture. Uh, for example, I think one of the gifts that God's given uh, white Americans in particular is this gift of longing for greater purpose in the world. You know, a lot of white Europeans, when they immigrated to the U.S., were longing for something greater, a greater life for their family, but also the, with this hope of being a greater society, a society that would have freedom of religion, that would be democratic, uh, a society that would give them a chance to create something that was better than what they had experienced. A lot of them made sacrifices as they immigrated here. Uh, many desired... Uh, to see God help them to become a society that would be a city set upon a hill. And as white Americans experienced their faith growing in, in, on these lands, uh, in the 1800s, a lot of white missionaries from America started being sent out into the rest of the world. Uh, by 1900, uh, a quarter of all Protestant missionaries came from the U.S. There are 4,000 white American missionaries out around in the world. That, and these missionaries, they knew they might never come home. They were making big sacrifices. They might die in the mission field. Uh, but they were longing for something greater, to be a part of a greater purpose 
than what they had than just to live for themselves. Rick Warren's book, A Purpose-Driven Life, really struck a chord in a lot of white Americans. It struck a chord in, in other ethnicities too, but I believe there's something about that phrase of living a purpose-driven life that really struck a chord with um, this desire for greater purpose in white culture. And my vision is to see that um, to see people say, ask the same question that they asked of the Galileans in Acts. You know, are these are these not Galileans? Are these not white people? How then do we hear them preaching the gospel in our own native language? How then do we hear them translating the gospel in such a way that I hear God in my own native language, in my own heart language? So what I want us to do is take the first step in embracing our identity by just naming our, our identities. So if you have uh, the bulletin on the back page, after steps, step one, embrace your identity. Are these not Galileans? Uh, we all have a culture of steps to embrace our identity. So name my identity. I am blank. And I want you to spend a few minutes just filling in things that affect your cultures or different things that affect who you are. Uh, it could be your geography. You know, I'm from Northern California, so I say Hekka. You're fr- you might be from Southern California, so when you see people, you say, how'd you get here? Where'd you park? You know, where our geography affects our culture. So um, take a few minutes and fill in those blanks with things that affect your culture, your gender, your age, um, your vocation even. Uh, so I'm going to give you a few seconds to do that. So this is going to feel kind of vulnerable, but I believe what makes a good church is people supporting each other as we, choose, as we seek to grow in God. So I want you to share with the person next to you one of the things that you wrote down. Uh, maybe it's something, you don't have to share all of them or you can, but um, just share what are some of the things that make up your identity. Uh, so go ahead and do that.
Right. I hope you each had a chance to share. So, uh, other ways to grow and embrace our ethnic identity. One is just naming uh, our ethnicities, our backgrounds, and things that make up our identity. Uh, another way is to read fiction and nonfiction books. Uh, one of the things I did as I was trying to embrace my identity more uh, was I read books like More Than Serving Tea by Nikki Toyama, who I think used to go to this church, and um, reading books, uh, fiction books like um, Namesake by Jhumpa Lahiri. And even though that's a story about an Indian family, because it's a story about an immigrant family, uh, it really struck a chord with me. Uh, experience art made by people like me, um, like people like yourself, you know, kind of experiencing that and being able to articulate uh, what, what forms your identity is helpful. And, uh, and then also asking God to show me how he sees my identity. You know, when I was at Urbana, singing that song in Mandarin really struck a chord for me and gave me the opportunity to just be softened towards my own identity and allowing God to bring healing into that. Um, and we're not going to do this now, but, you know, on the next line in your, in your handout, it says to take a moment to pray and reflect and write down, you know, ways that you feel like God's calling you to embrace your identity. Um, so you can feel free to do that now if you have something in your mind, or, or take this home and pray and ask God, what is something that you're asking me to do? to embrace my identity more. So after we are able to embrace our identity, the next step is to share the gospel in another culture, to share the gospel in another culture's heart language. Now that can feel really hard because now that we've embraced our identity, we know distinctly how we have wrapped this present of the gospel and how that's distinctly me. So how do we unwrap that for someone and and offer the gospel to someone else and allow it to be translated into their culture? And I believe that's the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, the disciples were waiting. They had to spend all this time waiting in this room, waiting, listening, asking for God to speak. And it wasn't until they were empowered by the Holy Spirit uh, that they were able to see the gospel transformed and translated. Uh, So in order to share the gospel in other languages, we need to become good listeners, good listeners to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit guides us. Uh, We also need to be good listeners of other cultures and other people of that culture. Uh, one, of, one of the people, one of my heroes of the faith is Matteo Ricci. He was a Portuguese missionary, a Catholic Jesuit priest who went to China. And he spent the first, like, decade of his missions work just listening, learning the Chinese language, uh, learning about Chinese culture, reading all of Confucius' writings. And when he introduced the gospel to Chinese culture, he did it through the lens of Confucius' teachings. He basically was like, Jesus' teachings, the teachings of Christianity, are basically living out what Confucius values. Uh, but all this time, you're, this, this is how your culture has been pointing to Jesus. Uh, Korean Catholic missionaries, when they first went to Korea, uh, they introduced the name of God as uh, Chonzu, which is based on the Chinese word of Tianzu, which means uh, heavenly lord. But after much listening to the community and the culture, uh, there were some Protestant missionaries who came um, in the early 1900s or late 1800s who decided to translate the word for God into Hananim, which is the more native Korean word uh, for personal deity. And it was after listening to the culture and listening to the community that people were able to say, actually, I think this is a more appropriate word for the culture to understand God. 
and Korean Protestants in 1920 were about 1.4% of the population. And over the next 60 years, we saw that grow to 16%. And I believe one of the key things was giving the gospel the freedom to be translated into the heart language of the Korean people and allowing them to call God Hananim, which is closer to uh, the Korean word for God than Chonju, um, the translated Chinese word. So listening, how do we listen to a culture? Uh, one way is to find a mentor. So I'm Chinese, Taiwanese American, and I did work for about five years with black students at Cal. We have a ministry called Black Campus Ministries. And when I started, I had no idea what I was doing. And so I found a mentor. I met once a week with this woman, Leslie Bolingdyer, uh, who uh, counseled me, who answered questions for me like, okay, Leslie, when I work with Asian students, they feel like they can't get enough of my time. And when I work with black students, they won't give me any appointments and I can't ever meet with them. So what's the deal here? And she, you know, translated that for me and helped me to understand how do I translate the way I did discipleship with Asian American students to doing discipleship with black students. I was mentored by watching, uh, watching films or reading books. Uh, I read um, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, I read this book called um, Free at Last by Carl Ellis, a black theologian talking about how do you contextualize the gospel for African Americans. Um, so let's actually take a moment to pray and reflect. I know that uh, people in this church are doing a lot of work with Living Hope Neighborhood Church in Richmond. I don't know if I said their name right, but um, a predominantly African-American church. You know, maybe God's calling some of us here uh, to learn more about the black community and how can we translate the gospel for black folks. Or there's people at your work, uh, people who you interact with all the time who have different cultures. How is God asking me to follow, to follow him by listening to another culture? Uh, so there's a little space in your brochure or whatever that's called, your bulletin. Um, go ahead and take a moment to pray and reflect. How... Are you going to try to listen to another culture? I'm going to pray for some of the things that uh, you've, you wrote down or um, were on your heart. God, thank you for um, yeah, the ways that you're moving us to fulfill your calling upon us to love every culture and every nation. I pray that you would empower us with your Holy Spirit, help us to hear you and to hear uh, other cultures' heart languages. And God, may you empower us uh, to share the gospel uh, to other cultures and other nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so one of the things that I really appreciated working with Black Campus Ministries is after five years of working there, one of the students, uh, Dana Brown, she's actually on staff with InterVarsity now, she told me, Wendy, you're you know Chinese, Taiwanese-American, and you actually really mentored me in becoming a black Christian woman. And that was just so touching for me, that God could use me, someone who's not black, to help Dana, embrace who she is in her black identity and to hear the gospel for her in her language. And I believe that's the power of the Holy Spirit. 
believe the power of the Holy Spirit is what took me from being a child who hated my language, who hated my ethnicity, uh, to becoming an adult who got to hear the gospel in my own language and got to hear how God loved all of who I was, how he removed my shame, how he gave me hope, how he embraced my identity, how he embraced my history, and to becoming a person who would help other people experience the same from Jesus. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, because of the Holy Spirit, we can experience the power of God's love for us and bring the gospel to all nations. That is what we are called to do as followers of Jesus. This great commission that God gave the disciples, where he told them to wait, wait for me, so that I will clothe you with power from on high, so that you can bring the gospel to all nations, starting with Jerusalem, starting with who you are. That is what God is calling us to do, to wait for the Holy Spirit, to allow him to to empower us so that we may go out and preach the gospel to all nations. Praise be to God.